Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And for now, I'm alone in our studio. We've got a relatively short podcast for y'all today. I'm going to share an interview that I did with Dr. Carolyn Bordeaux. She is a Democrat running for Congress in the 7th Congressional District as she is vying to replace Rob Woodall in that district. Woodall has said that he is not running for re-election in 2020. Dr. Bordeaux came back to the podcast to tell us about her views on some of the issues, including health care and gun violence in schools. And she also reacted to a new ad from Harrison Floyd, the newest Republican to enter the 7th Congressional District race. And this ad is really striking for the political violence it maybe inadvertently encourages. And so I play a clip from that ad in the segment. But we also link to the ad in our show notes. And I think it's important to both hear and see the visuals that are being presented in that ad. So without further ado, I will turn it over to my conversation with Dr. Bordeaux. All right, so joining the podcast today is Dr. Carolyn Bordeaux, a Georgia State professor and former Senate Budget Office Director from Swanee. Carolyn is a candidate for Georgia's 7th Congressional District, currently held by Republican Rob Woodall. Dr. Bordeaux, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. So we're really early in the 2020 cycle. Uh, So let's just start by giving our listeners the opportunity to learn a little more about you. Can you tell us about your background and why you decided to jump into this race? Um, Sure. Yeah. So I teach public policy at Georgia State um, and really have a background in public finance. And I tell folks that I always you know, I have staffed a lot of elected officials. I worked on the Hill for Senator Ron Wyden. I was director of Georgia's Senate Budget and Evaluation Office. And so I've, you know, generally been behind the scenes. Um, but a couple things changed for me in 2016. One was the election of Donald Trump. And just a sense of this country has gone, you know, is about to go and it's been proven, borne out in my mind, uh, going badly off track. And the other big issue is healthcare. And, you know, Georgia did not expand Medicaid. And we have seen one attack after the next on the Affordable Care Act. Um, There are 134,000 people in the 7th Congressional District without health insurance. And so it was issues like this um, that kind of propelled me to change my role from someone who was a staff person, a teacher, someone working behind the scenes to stepping out in front. Um, so this actually isn't your first go at it. Um, you ran for this seat in 2018, and after winning the primary, came up short to Congressman Woodall by just a few hundred votes. Uh, but Rob Woodall is not running again for this seat in 2020, so you'd be running for an open seat if you win the primary. What lessons do you take from last year's race? Yeah, so just a, a couple interesting bits of information about that. Uh, the 7th Congressional District race was the closest race in the country, 433 votes. Um, and this, it, at the time, it was something of a sleeper race and one that, um, you know, folks were, were not sure about, not sure whether I could win. Um, but now this race has kind of rocketed to the top of the list. It is considered, you know, a top uh, toss-up and one of the top prospects for Democratic pickup in the country. So the dynamic has really changed a lot, um, you know, in terms of what I learned um, well, there, there are so many things. Doing this is a, a very unique experience. But, you know, I would say it's, it's more that in the first round, uh, we really built a community of folks who are very interested in this race, very interested in, you know, pushing it forward. Um, you know, we're excited about a public policy professor running for Congress. And um, 
what has been so nice sort of in the second round is we have that wonderful network of folks who are really, you know, excited about seeing this through. If you get elected to represent the 7th Congressional District, chances are Democrats had a pretty good night, including likely taking the White House back and possibly even the Senate. So you would go to Washington to govern, presumably. In your view, what should be the top priority for the next Congress? Um, well, just as the basic you know, pocketbook issue, I would love to see health care fixed. I think we just have a lot of people who are suffering in this district, either paying extremely high premiums, paying extremely high amounts for prescription drugs, um, or, you know, struggling to get insurance at all. And that, that's really, that is a top priority. Uh, Another one I would love to see, you know, if we have that window uh, where everybody is on the same page is to really push through campaign finance reform and try to, you know, fix our system um, of democracy itself and, you know, fix how we run campaigns and do them. Uh, right now, there's just a ton of money, lots and lots of special interest money, uh, you know, in these races. And uh, I, I think we can do better. Let's actually dig in on healthcare a little bit here. So Democrats nationally are currently debating what a healthcare agenda should be for the next Democratic president. And the debate seems to fall along the lines of whether folks believe that there should be a role for private insurance coverage. So if you're elected to the House, would you like to see that chamber pursue legislation that prohibits private companies from selling health insurance? Or would you prefer reforms to the existing system where most people get their insurance through either their employer or the ACA or Medicare and Medicaid? Right. So what I tell folks is I want to make sure that everybody has quality, affordable health care. And that is really my top priority. There are different ways of getting there. Um, Right now, 50% of the people in the 7th Congressional District get their health insurance through private insurers, uh, through their employer, typically. And so unwinding that system would be an enormous uh, undertaking and something I think a lot of folks would find very problematic. So what I've talked about is, uh, you know, going back, fixing the Affordable Care Act, and then introducing a public option to the exchange so that people who don't have access to, you know, good quality employer-based coverage have something that they can opt into. And also so that small businesses have something that they can opt into that's affordable. Um, Let's stick with healthcare for a minute here. What is your view of House Bill 481, a bill that Governor Kemp signed this week that would ban abortions in the state of Georgia at six weeks? I am deeply disappointed that Georgia has put that uh, legislation out there. We have the highest rate of maternal mortality uh, in the country, and this is not a country that is particularly good on that anyway. Um, uh, African-American women are, I think the number is three times more likely uh, to die in childbirth um, than a white woman. And, uh, you know, that's those numbers are very troubling. Uh, you know, taking away the choice, reproductive choices from women is going to affect their health, their lives, their families. And it's something that I think a lot of us have just taken for granted. You know, for our entire lives, we have assumed that we have reproductive choice. And now that is really being taken away. And I don't think people really understand uh, many of the unintended consequences as well that may come out of this, um, including, you know, criminalizing uh, doctors uh, performing procedures uh, that may be important. Now, this is a state bill, and it's a bill that's likely to get held up in 
uh, federal courts. Uh, but there are federal levers here on this policy of abortion. Um, so would you like to see the policy which blocks federal Medicaid funding for abortion services? This is a policy known as the Hyde Amendment. Would you like to see that right. policy repealed? Yes, I would. And there's also, there are a number of other provisions. There's um, there are gag rules uh, where uh, any body who provides an abortion or refers someone to an abortion provider overseas uh, cannot get federal funds, uh, cannot get U.S. Uh, aid and uh, funds. And this is life or death for many women. I mean, that means doctors cannot refer women to get an abortion, even if their very life is at stake. And, uh, you know, th- these are very bad policies for women that are coming out of this administration. Now, if uh, Georgia's heartbeat bill or if any of these other abortion restrictions that are being considered at the state level, if they, in one form or another, become come before the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court significantly uh, undermines the existing legal protections in Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, would you like to see Congress uh, adopt legislation that reinstitutes uh, protections for access to abortion? Yes, I would. And I'm not sure what legislation is out there right now, but absolutely. We would need to re, you know, restore access uh, to women you know, through some form of federal legislation. Um, so let's turn to climate change here. Uh, projections for the impact of climate change on the U.S. have become even more dire, with a recent report estimating that the effects of climate change could cause $54 trillion in damage in the long run. In your view, what should the federal government do about climate change? Yes. So this is something that is a very, very serious very serious issue. I have, um, I just taught a class on this recently. And uh, one of the stats in one article um, pointed out that four of the five hottest years on record uh, occurred over the last five years. Uh, We have 571 or so major cities around the globe that are uh, at sea level, and that represents about 800 million people who could be d- displaced uh, because of climate change and sea level rise. Uh, we just saw that UN report come out that a million species could go extinct. We, the hour is growing short. Uh, we need to make sure that we are, you know, dramatically reducing our carbon footprint um, in short order. And I do think uh, looking at some kind of national mobilization around uh, reforming our power grid and reforming, you know, the vehicles, our our vehicle fleet uh, is going to be really important to addressing this. And uh, I am, I have not come out in full support of the Green New Deal and all of the different provisions in it, but I think some of their ideas are very, very important. They are bold, and we're going to have to be bold in the years to come to really tackle this issue. So let's pause on policy here and give you a chance to react to findings from the Mueller report and where you stand on congressional oversight of President Trump. Um, So today, Nancy Pelosi said that the country was in a constitutional crisis with the House Judiciary Committee recommending that the full House hold Attorney General Bill Barr in contempt. This comes just a couple weeks after the report from Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian efforts to interfere with the 2016 election was released. Uh, That report did not indict the president, but did point out 10 instances where the president may have obstructed justice and left the ultimate decision on that issue to Congress. Despite all of this, Democrats, Democratic leaders continue to pump the brakes on impeachment proceedings. So what is your view of the oversight that the House should be doing of the Trump administration at this point? And do you think that it should rise to the level of beginning impeachment proceedings? 
so we are in a very tough spot right now. What Congress is doing, I think, is on the right path. They need to keep pressing down this pathway to understand what happened, uh, you know, getting the full Mueller report, reviewing it, making sure that they hold hearings. I, you know, along with, you know, many people were not quite there on impeachment yet. We need to make sure that the country is brought along in this process and people understand, you know, what is happening and why. Um, but we are entering into a very dark time. I do think our laws have to be enforced. I don't think anybody is above the law. And I think the Trump administration is very much acting that way right now. Um, so let's uh, jump back into some policy here and talk about gun policy. We are 19 weeks into 2019, and we've already seen 15 school shootings where someone was injured or killed. And two of these shootings have occurred in Georgia. Um, I want to play a little bit of audio here. Um, here is how a 12-year-old student reacted to one of these shootings in Highlands Ranch, Colorado. Can you take me back to yesterday and tell me what happened? So I have I have um, some sensitive I have sensitive ears. So um, they shot out the doors and I heard the gunshots and I just kind of froze. And then the siren came on and our teacher um, and somebody started cracking a joke. And um, and the teacher told them to shut up and then she had us hide behind her desk. And when the shooter got closer, she moved us into the closet. Um, I was hiding in the corner, and they were right outside the door. Um, I had my hand on the uh, metal baseball bat, just in case, because I was going to go down fighting if I was going to go down. We've been round and round in this conversation with really almost no progress implemented, although the House did pass a bill on expanded background checks this year. That bill is expected to go nowhere in a Republican Senate. How do we get to a solution that can actually be passed and signed by the president? So, you know, hearing that clip, I'm the mother of a seven-year-old son, and it's just, it is devastating to me that that's what our children are learning. And, you know, my son hears about these lockdowns, and it is terrifying. So we absolutely, yes, something has to be done. I, I do recognize that, you know, we have a legislative process and I, we just have to keep pushing. We have to keep pushing and we have to keep pushing at the ballot box to elect people who are going to do something about common sense gun safety reform. And I often talk to my students about what it takes to make change in this country. And I point out, you have to push over and over and over again. You have to be relentless for a long period of time to make change. And that's what we have to do. We just can't flag in our commitment and we have to focus hard on every single election year after year after year until we get the change we want. Yeah, this is an issue I've uh, talked with Rachel Kinsey. She's running over in the 11th Congressional District. And and uh, for our listeners, it's it's worth it to go back and check out that interview as well because a lot of parents are having to have tough discussions with their kids about uh, this issue and, and how they should react in this instance. Yeah. Let's turn to a, a little bit of other policy here. Um, Democrats, uh, largely on economic policy, have been focused on uh, increases to the minimum wage, uh, but we haven't, I don't believe, seen a bill come to the floor of the House since Democrats have taken over 
increasing the federal minimum wage. Um, so would you like to see the federal minimum wage increased? And if so, what level do you think it should be increased to? Yes, um, I do think it should be increased. Uh, what I would like to see uh, is a focus on what a living wage would be. And to get there, what we need to do is to bring up the minimum wage, certainly to keep up with uh, inflationary increases over the time. Over time, I think in uh, the minimum wage probably hit its purchasing power high point uh, in the late 60s. And if we were to bring our current minimum wage up to that level, I think it would be you know over $10 an hour. But I think that's not enough. And what we need to do is pair that with uh, increases in the earned income tax credit uh, and do that to make sure that someone who goes out, who works you know, a solid 40-hour week, can live, can survive, you know, and can support a family. And, uh, you know, we have kind of lost our vision in that area. And I think that having a living wage and making sure that folks are able to survive on that, it is not just an issue about, you know, economic justice or dealing with income inequality. But I think if we can make sure that people are able to, you know, have a good solid income, we will find it affects us in other areas, uh, for instance, like education. And one of the big barriers to education, for instance, is that young people who are from low-income families uh, often are not able to find affordable housing, and their parents aren't making enough to, to live, and so they're constantly moving. And that alone affects their ability to be educated. So I think the living wage is connected to lots of other issues that are very, very important. Um, so as you and I both know well, all of these policy issues always get mixed up into politics. Um, so let's turn and close with a little bit of discussion of the politics at play here. Um, so this week, Harrison Floyd entered the race for the 7th District on the Republican side with a new ad. And I want to play a little bit of that ad here. My name is Harrison Floyd. I'm a fourth generation military veteran, a former United States Marine. I'm running for Congress because my family and I didn't fight for our freedoms to allow our country to fall to socialism. I'll fight socialists in Congress the same way I fought terrorists in the desert. So help me God. I'm Harrison Floyd, and I approve this message. So that was that ad from Harrison Floyd. Lynn Homerick was a little less aggressive, but in her opening ad, she said she would fire people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez if she was their boss. So what is your reaction to the messages being sent by Republicans in these early ads? I first want to start out with Mr. Floyd's ad. Um, let me start, start by saying, you know, I deeply honor our veterans and their commitment to service and their commitment to this country. But what he is doing in this ad is saying that he would fight his political opponents the way he fought terrorists in Iraq. And then I don't know if, you know, if people can get this from the clip, but then he shows himself, you know, down on the ground firing a gun. The implication is the way that he fought terrorists was with a gun and that he is going to shoot his political opponents. I mean, that's the direct message. It is perhaps very inartfully put, you know, it's uh, an inept ad and one that should be redone, perhaps. I'm not sure if that's what he meant to convey, but it is outrageous. He should take that ad down. Uh, it is unacceptable. It is dangerous, the message he's conveying through that. Uh, well, generally, 
do you what do you take from the so both of the ads um on in the on the side in the seventh district harrison floyd's ad and lynn humrick's ad and karen handel's opening ad over in the sixth district specifically calls out women in congress like alexandria ocasio-cortez rashida talib uh in ilan omar um it seems pretty clear that the republican message um has has turned these three women in particular into the villains of their campaign message. What do you make of that development? Um, I think it's a very typical Republican strategy to try to vilify a few people and then attach everybody to those folks that they have tried to tear down. Um, And it's an unfortunate strategy. Uh, It is not talking about the issues. It is not talking about what's important to people. And I think they have to do it that way because they don't have a single leg to stand on in terms of the issues that they are pushing forward. We don't have health care. We need quality, affordable health care. We've seen zero progress on that. And in fact, the Trump administration is out there litigating against the Affordable Care Act, trying to bring it down in whole, including bringing down the provisions that require coverage for people with pre-existing conditions. So yes, they're trying to distract us with that. And then uh, finally here, before you uh, get to the general, you'd have to get through a, a Democratic primary, and, and there's been a few people to enter this race. Um, what is your view of how this competition with your fellow Democrats is developing? I know you've put out some press releases about securing some early endorsements and and some of your fundraising totals, for instance. How do you think the primary is developing? You know, it's hard to say. Uh, what I can say is this was the closest race in the country last round. Um, you know, early on, I talked to folks about getting back in and whether I should do it or not. And I have to say the support I have received has been just wonderful. Um, You know, I raised money and I raised it, though, because everybody who helped me before was like, yes, we are in again. We want to take the seat. We want to finish this job. Um, I have endorsements from John Lewis, from Governor Roy Barnes, from Hank Johnson, from Ambassador Andrew Young, uh, from Max Cleland from many, many people in the delegation, in the legislative delegation within the 7th Congressional District. Um, So I really, you know, it has been, it has kept me going uh, to have the level of support that I've had in getting back in. Just to wrap this up here, um, you are uh, running for the 7th Congressional District. If, If people would like to learn more about your campaign, how can they do that? Yes, they can go to my website, which is carolynforcongress.com. All righty. Well, uh, Dr. Bardo, thank you so much for joining the podcast. All right. Thank you for having me. Take care. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.